You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, John McGuire. How are you doing? Hey, Glenn. You look good, man. <laughs> Thank you. So do you. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're just saying that. This is Glenn Lowry at the Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv. I'm with John McWhorter, who is professor of humanities at Columbia University. We're the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. The Glenn Show is brought to you in part by the Watson Institute uh, for International and Public Affairs at Brown, where I'm a professor. <clears throat> so, John, how you doing, man? I am pretty good. It's been, um, as you know, last week was a very interesting week in terms of race and defenestration and our views versus the quote-unquote mainstream view. I've been straining to take it all in while trying to lead a life and also catch up with linguistics as we academics are supposed to do over the summer, catch up with our actual subject. It's been overwhelming. How are you feeling? I'm I'm an amused and interested consumer of these events uh, to which you have just given reference. This is all about cancel culture. This is the Harper's letter that our friend Thomas Chatterton Williams helped to uh, promote in which a wide range of uh, distinguished uh, intellectuals and writers signed off on a critique of excesses on the left of uh, political correctness and uh, kind of a forced conformity of, uh, of uh, expression. Uh, this is, this is uh, Barry Weiss in a famous letter resigning from the New York Times op-ed page where she's an editor or was an editor amidst a uh, accusation that uh, she was the subject of bullying in her uh, newsroom and a letter to uh, Salzburg uh, basically saying, how can you allow this to happen at your newspaper? She says, Twitter is an editor. Twitter is now an editor at the New York Times. This is Andrew Sullivan stepping down uh, from his uh, position, his uh, column at uh, New York Magazine, uh, basically saying that the uh, contempt for him amongst his colleagues because of views that he had expressed had become such that uh, he didn't feel comfortable anymore. Do I get this right? I mean, correct me if I say anything that's wrong in summary here. Um, and this is you, John, uh, with a major piece in The Atlantic last week uh, uh, critiquing uh, Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. And with an appearance this very morning, I caught you, man. I didn't even know you were going to be on. I'm coming out of my gym where I was doing a workout. <laughs> I've turned on the radio, and there's John McWhorter holding forth on why uh, D'Angelo's book is uh, is is a bad book, uh, a racist track. John, amazing, and you defended that position. I give you an opportunity to expand on that. But here we are; we're living in all of this uh, time of turmoil and uprising. Uh, uh, what with the George Floyd uh, demonstrations and protests, Black Lives Matter, and so forth, that's ongoing. Uh, and it looks like there's a kerfluffle or two afoot in the intellectual world, in the realm of the people who are scribes and the, the men and women of ideas uh, along a similar line. So it's all very interesting. Yeah, it's really something. And, you know, I see two totemic indications of our times. The first one was when the CDC and other health officials actually stood and said in the public square that people being close together and yelling in each other's faces during the protests over George Floyd was okay even under pandemic conditions because racism trumps basic health even amidst a pandemic. That was a truly medieval moment. I mean, I, that really made me wonder what world I'm living in. Now we got a second one, which is that there's this letter that Harper's is going to publish, but it's now been published because it's been seen online where I think 153 people were asked to sign a letter just arguing against 
this idea that unpopular ideas are to be censored and that the people who express them are to be made to suffer in terms of their careers in some way. A bunch of us, such as Thomas Chatterton Williams, I've got a question for you, by the way, Glenn, and you know it's coming, but Thomas Chatterton Williams and me and various people who you would expect to sign that, all of us were asked. I didn't even think. Two milliseconds. I thought, yep, put me on there. I had no idea who would be on it. And the interesting thing about the response to that letter has been, this to me is as symbolic of our times as the CDC a couple months ago, is that an awful lot of people, and Glenn, this is the thing, most of them, especially the ones I know, are brilliant and more to the point, kind. They're normal people. Actually think that that letter was a bad thing because what people like Thomas and me and Barry and Mark Lilla and everybody else is complaining about is okay. Now, they don't put it in so many words, but they think that what we're complaining about is the way things should be in a progressive society. And I'm almost done. They're not all young is the thing. And more to the point, they're not crazy. I've met some of these people, their moms, their dads, their friends, they're soft spoken. They have hobbies. They play the accordion. And yet these very <laughs> normal people. Think they that do it's not okay. play the accordion. <laughs> These normal people think that the way it is is okay and resent someone like me as a tenured fat cat who's arguing from my position where I supposedly can't be hurt. And actually, they defend this. Can you believe that? They think that I do believe it. I believe it because I think I know what they're saying. I think they're saying finally, some voices heretofore foreclosed are being heard. Women's voices are being heard about Me Too stuff. Uh, the uh, uh, historically underrepresented groups in the universities, I'm talking about black and brown people, uh, are being heard. Uh, J.K. Rowling is a bad woman because she's uh, transphobic, and the trans voices are finally being heard. And it seems to me what they're doing is elevating the value of the inclusivity of voice over what had heretofore been taken as uh, given about what I don't know, the rules of of a civil uh, public uh, discourse should be. Uh, so it's okay if, I don't know what, um, Amy Cooper mm-hmm. gets the not just uh, defenestrated, not, not, you know, if, if she's hung out to dry, it's okay if she's drawn and quartered. It's, it's, it's okay if, um, the you know, her whole life is ruined uh, because, after all, uh, she's just standing in for a power dynamic of whiteness that has the ability to call forth the awesome capacity of the state to suppress a black voice. She has the ability to do that in her in her uh, Karen like whiteness um, and and her individuality, her personhood. Uh, gets kind of rolled over like the tank rolling over the skeletal remains of the suppress, you know, I mean, because it's on behalf of this higher goal. It's on behalf, you know, and, and, you know, people, if you say French revolution, of course, they'll say you're going crazy. If you say Chinese uh, cultural revolution, they'll say you're mad, you're, you're over the top or whatever. Um, you know, but, but this is how that kind of thing, witch hunts, you know, this is how that kind of thing gets going. I mean, when you start defending the violence, right, you know, let's just take this to its logical conclusion, right? When you start saying burning the building down is okay, 
when you start saying trashing the police station, throwing the brick is okay, you know. Uh, so anyway. Uh, Although here's, here's what we have to do if we're going to be really responsible. What these people think, if you kind of push them into a corner on this, is that French Revolution, that went too far. Stalin, that went too far. Cultural Revolution, that went too far. But in this case, no food is being taken out of anybody's mouth. It's not going to get to the point of guns. And, you know, maybe we lack imagination, but it's not going to be that. It's just a matter of people being made to suffer very deeply. And as far as they're concerned, that's okay, because they're really correct. The idea that we must overturn these entrenched power differentials and make it so that white men are not always on top is something different from anything that they were trying to do in the Cultural Revolution. And therefore, it's worth some heads rolling, especially if what we mean by heads rolling is people losing their jobs or people no longer being accepted in the confines of polite society. I feel that that's incorrect. I feel that their version of eliminating power differentials is based on a very simplistic way of looking at the world. It really worries me that they are so uninterested in individualism, although it's interesting about that. You know, they, they, they want to take, say, Amy Cooper and make her into this roiling mass within which she might as well be Strom Thurmond. But then let anybody make a joke where they actually look at how people can be grouped together, a harmless joke based on harmless stereotypes. If Trader Joe's, for some of its Latino food products, calls it Trader Jose, that's considered sinful too, you know, even though that's generalizing. But we won't talk about that. I think what they're doing is based more on an ordinary human desire to destroy and embarrass and hurt people than on any sincere desire to see society change. But that's just me. And I wonder what could be said to these people to make them understand that the ways in which what they're doing resembles what happened during the Cultural Revolution, which was only about 10 minutes ago, and it only seems so exotic to us because it was in a language that most of us don't know. How would we convince them that what they're trying to pull is the same thing? Because they think this is different. Of course they think it's different. They you know, it's the left wing mirror image of the way I think a lot of right wingers respond to being told that Trump is a fascist and he's going to usurp the Constitution and the right wingers shrug and they say, oh, come on, you're mad, you're mad, you're mad. Likewise, those who, observe, you know, who object to left wing uh, cancel culture and liken it to, uh, you know, the Salem witch trials or uh, Stalin is not, you know, the, to which they'll say, come on, that's that's exaggerated. And in fact, I mentioned Trump. Not to start a fight with you, John, <laughs> but but just to observe that I think I think he looms here because I'm reading the objection to the Harper's letter that you signed and I didn't sign it. I know you want to talk to me about why yeah. I didn't sign it. I'm reading the objections to it. And a lot of them are saying you people don't realize what's at stake here. We're fighting for our frigging lives against the orange menace and all of that he brings in train, all that he brings in train. We're fighting against uh, the uh, white supremacists. We're, we're fighting against the proto-fascists. We're fighting for our country. That An election is coming. This is desperate. This is, and you're, you, uh, how did one of the critics uh, put it, who was quoted in the New York Times? I think I can remember this. Uh, fatuous, self-indulgent uh, uh, drivel. That's what he called that letter that you signed. Fatuous, mm-hmm. 
self-indulgent drivel because while you fiddle, Rome is burning. That is to say, while you pick at us on the left uh, with your, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, etiquette about how we should deal with uh, uh, traitors, uh, we're fighting for our lives here. Um, no, I didn't sign it, but that's, I'm mean, anyway, one thing at a time, I'm, I'm saying, that's what they're saying. They're saying mm-hmm. first things first, uh, mm-hmm. this is a second or a third order problem. Whatever it is that you're talking about is a third order problem relative to the first order problem, which is, uh, the threat to the Republic from the right. I, I couldn't sign it, man. First of all, I'm not on the left. I don't feel any need to, uh, genuflect. I don't feel any need to, but the, the, the letter basically says we on the left. Uh, recognize the threat from the right, but nevertheless, I mean that's how it's framed. It's well, framed in terms of left of center, not leftist. I think of myself as a liberal. Okay, I'm not going to type myself in that way, but I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to pass a left to center t- t- uh, test either. You know that <laughs> I'm a neoliberal economist. Forget about the race debate. I believe in markets. I think capitalism is okay, man. I think uh, <laughs> I know you like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I think she's a menace. I think she's a threat to the republic. I think the Not Green New Deal. I, I'm sorry. This is what I think. And this is why I'm not on the left. I think the Green New Deal. I mean, climate change is a real thing. I'm not putting my head in the sand. I think it's a disaster. I think that would be a disaster for my country. I think reparations, et cetera. I could go on. I won't. So I'm not on the left. That's one reason why I didn't sign. But the other reason, which I think is actually going to provoke you. <laughs> <laughs> they say, while we think, while we know that Donald Trump is the major threat to democracy, we nevertheless, and I think that's exactly wrong. That's exactly backwards. The threat is from the left in reaction to democracy. Democracy is what brings Donald Trump into the presidency in 2016. Okay, that was an election. Uh, horrific for the republic, wrong man won, bad, bad president, okay, whatever, resistance, whatever, whatever. That was an election, okay? Um, their problem, the, the uh, thought police, the ones who can't tolerate any small deviation of creativity, the ones who write letters like what were written to all of these universities by all of these top administrators about how we stand in solidarity with a left-wing political movement of anarchists in substantial part, okay? Um, That's a reaction to democracy, wrong outcome of the 2016 election. So they got it exactly backwards. They say he's a threat to democracy. He is who he is. He's the guy that won that election. Vote him out of office in 2020, and he won't be president anymore. But the craziness of the thought police at the magazines and the newspapers is at the Charles Blows of the world. Can you imagine how he actually reacted to Barry Weiss? When she spoke up and dared to say something a little bit deviating, like maybe we don't take George Washington's monument down. I don't know if she said that, but I could see her saying that, you know, Um, maybe your racial grievance isn't the only thing that's going on in the country that we need to take into account. I can imagine her saying that to Mr. Blow, who's on a mission, you know, I can imagine her fighting with editors about getting facts into the newspaper, which are inconvenient for a narrative line that the newspaper might want to push. I can imagine her, I don't know what she said, saying that Tom Cotton should be able to express his view about a legitimate public issue in the pages of the New York Times without the newspaper's editorial processes being driven by a cabal of race-conscious employees at the newspaper who are raining terror on anybody who dares to speak up deviant by epsilon from what it is that they think they should be saying. I can see her saying all this kind of stuff. And to me, 
that starts in 2016. It starts in November of 2016. So, no, Trump is not the greatest threat to democracy. In fact, you contradict yourselves, I'm saying to the letter writers, when you say that, because it was the democracy, warts and all, that brought you the, the phenomenon that has occasioned um, this madness that uh, threatens to consume institutions that you love. You know, Glenn, I get, I get you. I get you on that in terms of the the flow chart. It's true. And I mean, what it comes down to is that if we're talking about an American conversation where Barry Weiss and Andrew Sullivan cannot be allowed to have their say, they have to be muzzled. The things that they say are considered poison. You have to understand the analogy. These people are proposing. Now, there are things that we're not going to hear. Nobody would want to hear a pedophile explaining how his mind works and saying that there ought to be room for him to be able to do what he does. Just no. You know, I'm sure that in some obscure corners, there are people who argue for that. We don't need to be part of that discussion. And there are probably two or three other things, including slavery, where, you know, we're just going to let that go. We can't talk about everything. But for these people, the views of Barry and Andrew are included there. And I think if we really think of it that way, and I've read probably every column Barry wrote, I have never followed Andrew as closely for very random reasons, but I know what he does. If you really can't tolerate even reading one of those people, there's something wrong with you. You you can make your argument that this is progress, but if the progress means that Barry Weiss can't be heard, then it's just, it's ineluctable. You are somebody who is being extremely narrow for reasons that you need to explain. It's a contingent argument. It's not as obvious as they're making it seem. And I think that um, the the worrisome thing is that you, know, you and I disagree about Trump and um, how serious a problem he is. But symptomatically, a lot of what brought him in was the seeds of this kind of intolerance and people being tired of being told that they're idiots by books such as, although it had yet to appear in 2016, White Fragility. There are people who were tired of that attitude, so tired of it, that it would make them be as irrational as our social justice warrior mob and vote for that man out of a sense that at least there would be somebody in office who understands us and doesn't look down on us. And folks, for those of you who are Trump voters and you heard me say that, I'm sorry. I don't think that you are bad people to have voted for that man. However, we do have a disagreement about priorities that I'm not sure there is any worth discussing. I'm not calling you racist Trump fans. However, that is how I feel about his fitness for office. Can I say but something? I, I understand how you wouldn't want to sign the letter. I also think, Glenn, that you are really resistant to groupthink. There's a part of you where if too many people join you on one side of the room, you run to the other, which I think is a mark of intelligence. You don't want that embrace of a crowd. Is that is that an okay? Well, you sound like my son, Glenn the Second. Now on the on the uh, dad, you can't stand to have anybody agree with you, except <laughs> he doesn't think it's a mark of intelligence, <laughs> my son. <laughs> he, he thinks it's a mark of uh, Neanderthal uh, proclivity on my part. But, you know, actually, a quick a quick other thing that happened that I really was disturbed by is that within linguistics, you know, we had at, at the Linguistic Society of America, we have this this board that this um, on the um, the website, this blackboard, so to speak, where if anybody from the media has a question about linguistics, various specialists in our subfields are listed as people who you can write and ask the question. Steve Pinker, who I think most people consider not too shabby, was on that list as somebody who you asked. In fact, he was on it. I'm not sure why, but he was on it as just a general 
expert. And so, you know, this petition came from a group of linguists saying that Steve should not be on that list as somebody for the media to call, and that he should also be defrocked of his LSA fellow status. And once again, there's a big kerfuffle within linguistics. There's not going to be a linguistic for society. What? For what? What was Steve Pinker the, the target of the mob for? Steve what did he do? Pinker, at this time it's tweets. It's tweets where he could be interpreted as going against the orthodoxy about the role that race plays in cop killings. Then there are also some tweets where he could be interpreted as a sexist because, for example, he says that rape is not entirely disconnected from sex. And in all of the cases, you have to kind of squint to understand the case, but it's been decided that he's not sufficiently committed to overturning power differentials to represent the LSA. So the idea was not to try right, to get him know chase out Steve, of his job, but he, the idea was to get him basically defrocked, smacked in the face. And there's some other things that people have said about Steve in terms of his connection with Jeffrey Epstein, which I think are, you know, completely distorted. There's some people though who really believe those charges. I'm putting them in a different place because if you really do think he was okay. flying around in a plane with Epstein, knowing what Epstein was doing, I see what you mean. That's I wonder, on- I wonder how many of these people I even I would ask about linguists. I don't know, man. I, I, I wonder I wonder how many of them have read the blank slate. You well, know, they don't like you it. know Steve's book. I know they don't like it. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think that's, that's all wrong. The, the blank slate, the noble savage, which he, you know, the, the blank slate, the, the ghost in the machine. Well, they should be happy with that. He's, he's hitting on the evangelicals and the religious people. And I, um, I wonder how many of them have read the language instinct. This they've masterpiece. This yeah. They've all read the language. Do they, mm-hmm. do they know they they're talking think, about They don't, it? they don't do they deny know they're talking really. about a genius. I'm sorry. This is Steven Pinker. They do. Um, okay, better angels of our nature. I mean, do they know who they're talking about? They don't about? like that one. Right, exactly. They despise oh, him can because I just he's say saying they're getting better. He's a towering figure as an intellectual. He's one of the leading thinkers of our generation. Can I just say this? Most of these critics can't carry his book bag. I'm sorry. <laughs> they don't, they, they, I mean, really. Come on, this is Steven Pinker. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he's earned a little bit of deference. I mean, if Noam Chomsky, just another linguist, uh, can go hard left and 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 lose his mind. Stephen Pinker can have an opinion. <laughs> no, he can't because it's not. <laughs> he's not overturning power differentials. And so you know the the big linguistics conference this year, which is after New Year's every year, it's going to be virtual. In other words, it's not going to be a real conference. And I hate to admit, I'm glad because the fault lines on this are so leery and hostile that those of us like me who really fought on Twitter against this list and its implications are now seen as, you know, we're, we're heretics, not to mention oh, yeah, older, fat cats, et cetera. And he so, yeah, I really am glad. He becomes so, kind of a symbol of something, and then it's a question of whose side are you on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know that I was an old white man, but apparently that's what I've become over the past two or three weeks. And so here we are. I also supposedly have tenure. You know, very few people know that because of quirks of administration, I am not tenured at Columbia. I have successive contracts that have me teaching until I'd be too old to do it. But I do not have tenure. May you live forever. I'm expressing my opinions. Yeah, but it should also be mentioned that you're revered around Columbia by your students and your colleagues who understand your value and uh, would know the, the tremendous loss that the university would incur where your services no longer to be made available to them. It'd be interesting to see. But, um... Yeah, this stuff, this stuff is tough. But yeah, no Barry, no Andrew. That's what this is. I think we have to distinguish between what that sort of latte sipping person, 
sorry for the stereotype, who says that they're into white privilege and dismantling structures says. And what the actual results of all of this are, if what you mean by dismantling structures, which sounds good, that's a beautiful way of putting it. If what you mean is that Andrew Sullivan has to blog by himself, he is not acceptable at New York Magazine, then we need to have a conversation. For one thing, these people need to put their cards on the table. And two, once the cards are on the table, we need to listen to their non-defenses of the excesses of this. They're going to say that everything we talk about is an excess. But at what point do we realize that it's the norm? Okay, now how about this, John? How about this? So I'm the economist in the room here, and this is the first thought that as an economist occurs to me, which is, never mind all this moralizing, this is really about the bottom line. Segmented media markets, you're looking for clicks, you're looking for subscribers, you're looking for advertising dollars, you have a brand. There is no longer any such thing as a platform that's neutral and it doesn't have a political identity. There used to be such platforms who were all about professionalism and, you know, hard shoe leather reporting and really brilliant writing and whatever. They don't exist anymore. Everybody has chosen sides. We're in the era of Trump. Everybody's got a side, okay? Now, if I want to survive, because the pickings are scarce, because platforms are going under, because print media can't pay the bills anymore. If I want to continue, I have to develop and nurture my brand, my brand as a the orange man bad, coast good, center of the country bad uh, kind <laughs> of uh, identity that draws people to me. And if I have a, a if I have a portfolio of writers, I need them to balance off of each other. They can't all be saying exactly the same thing. I want a little bit of variety, but I can't have the guy over here pissed off because the woman over here is saying stuff that he can't bear anymore. And I, you know, I got to maintain a certain kind of cohesion within my, my uh, workforce as well as cultivate uh, and nurture uh, uh, the loyalty of my customers out there. And now that my branding has become more explicitly political, the uh, capacity to tolerate, uh, you know, heterogeneity, heterodoxy within my ranks becomes, uh, becomes less and less, something like that. So there's a yeah. kind of logic to it, and the people may be driven to this just by the bottom line without uh, regard to any higher uh, principle. And, you know, I've, I've heard things like that, and I think that we're at the point where the way we have to think of it is this. A certain group has acquired a disproportionate amount of power because of one arrow in their quiver. It started in the late 60s that it was a bad thing to be a racist among especially educated people, but even beyond that world. You don't want to be called prejudiced. After a while, you don't want to be called racist. You really don't want to be called racist. To be called racist is to be called a pedophile. Nowadays, we have the woke mob, where they have this radical vision of the way society is supposed to go. It's straight out of the French Revolution, minus the physical part. And most people, I suspect, most good people do not agree with this paradigm. Most people read White Fragility and think, what the fuck is this? Most people can read it and see that this is a bizarre little manual. Gosh, I hope you're right. You should, you really should read like a couple chapters. But I think most People understand that. But the problem is, if you go against this mob, and I hear this daily in you know, missives that I get from people, including quick sidebar. I mentioned, I think, two shows ago that 
I had seen somebody who was in a position of authority who had learned in a publicity video for that institution to speak this woke language. And I said that I knew this person 25 years ago. They didn't talk like that then. By chance, I got a missive from that person a week ago. That person is stepping down from their position because they don't agree with what's being called racism and they don't want to stand up to being called a racist in public, believe it or not. That's how bad this is. So that okay, person- Wait a minute, I'm not following your point. I'm, I'm sorry, I, did, I don't quite get what you're saying. There is a person who <laughs> I saw in a position of authority. I've got yes. to keep this person anonymous. For the publicity for the institution, there were these little videos of that person talking about what the mission of the institution is. And there that person was speaking that woke language about what the notion of a community is, et cetera. But they didn't really believe it. I, by chance, heard from that person after a very, very long time. They had not heard me say anything on blogging. They don't know. Heard from that person who said that they're leaving that position because they, they can't stand the heat. I had no idea that I would hear from that person. Meaning they can't continue to mouth what it is they think necessary to say in that position. Because they don't agree. And they can see that they would be mauled if they spoke out. There are many, many people like this. And you hear from them. I hear from them. I've heard almost nothing but good things about my white fragility piece in the Atlantic. There was last week when I started gathering missives from professors saying that they feel under siege. Yeah. trolls told me that I was lying when I said that I get a message every day. Now I've got well over 140. It's Good. real. So the question is, we've got to other these people, to use their terminology. We've got to other this crowd and make it clear to normal people that they can't let these people win just because they're afraid to be called racist. They have one thing. They don't have logic. They don't have compassion. They don't have history on their side. What they've got is that they can call you a dirty name and all of us are scared to death to be called a dirty name in public. We have got to call it that. We have got to instill a little bit of backbone in all good men and women. And we've got to other them, first of all, by giving them a name. And, you know, I solicit to the audience, what is the (laughs) name of this? So calling it social justice warrior, that sounds too abusive. And so SJW doesn't work. Calling them the woke mob, once again, they will take up space by saying, how dare you call us a mob? Calling them religious? Well, I've noticed that that tends to insult the genuinely religious people. I, in my the book that I'm writing, they're the parishioners, but I'll bet that's not going to go over. You can call them the third wave anti-racist, but the, anti, the, the, the acronym for that is TWA, which makes them sound like an airline. What is the name of this? Because if we don't name it, we can't. Uh, John, my money's on you to come up with something good before it's over. So I'll, I'm not I'll good at coming good. up with names. So I'm but, just saying. Let me see what you think about this now, because I have been in my mind every uh, now and then when I hear someone called a racist, just mentally inserting the word which and do you know it almost always works yep yep they're they're, what they're actually doing is they're calling you a witch Mm -hmm. okay they're they're saying you believe in witchcraft they are saying you are the devil's handmaiden they're they're calling you a witch this is salem kind of behavior why because in your high school yearbook you made a comment this was 30 years ago in your tweet from 12 years ago, when you were sitting in your room uh, uh, drinking too much beer, you let loose on something. Why? Because you retweeted w- w- without ex- a sufficient explanatory or exculpatory uh, comment uh, something that somebody else has said. Why? Because you went on a podcast hosted by somebody who's known to be 
uh, uh, unspeakable. Um, why? Because you told a joke that a lot of people laugh at. Why? Because you voted for Donald Trump. After all, you can vote for Donald Trump. That doesn't make you a racist. Maybe you're pro-life. Maybe you're pro-Second Amendment. Maybe you're anti-immigration. You can be anti-immigration without being a racist. Mm-hmm. So when they invoke the category racist, what they're really doing is they're pointing their finger at you uh, and they're calling you a witch. Mm-hmm. You are somebody who practices the dark arts. You, you, you mm-hmm. are someone who worships the devil. Mm-hmm. You white supremacist racist. You, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's about at that cognitive level. I mean, it's not, nobody's got an argument. You know, there, there, there's not any uh, evidence. I mean, there's no, you know, it's about your soul. They're talking about what's in your soul. Mm-hmm. We need a mental exercise on this, which is that they haven't got we have any remember, idea what's motivating these people. The typical person doing this is not frothing at the mouth is the thing. But, That's but why they, this is so just, insidious. Excuse me, excuse me for interrupting. I just want to draw this, this uh, sharp point. So when you see Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck and you call him a racist, okay, without having a clue about what his motivation is. That's an instance of this thing, and I, I, I invite your commentary. Yeah, you have to. Um, I think a healthy mental exercise for us would be not to listen to the twenty-five tenets of Robin D'Angelo and learn not to say anything, but to listen to people using this language and always substitute "which" for whatever they're saying. And you know, don't imagine somebody holding a sign and jostling people around. Imagine somebody sitting at Starbucks, you know, stirring their coffee and kind of looking off into the distance and talking about things they found problematic in the news over the past couple of days, speaking in a normal voice. And they say, well, he's problematic because when they say that, imagine that person saying, well, he's a witch because, because that's what they're saying. Anybody who thinks that Andrew Sullivan should not be writing for New York magazine. And they say, well, you remember that piece he wrote about such and such about Matthew Shepard? Well, it was problematic. The person is saying, you dub it like it's a foreign language. Well, it made him a witch because that is, you're right. That is exactly what these people are saying. And if you agree with that, there are some people who might be able to take a deep breath and say, that is how I feel. All power to them, but that is a tiny fringe compared to using language in a way where you detract from how truly bumptious and unreflective all of this is. Barry Weiss is not a witch. (laughs) Barry Weiss has, in her case, some opinions that moderately stray from what many people have decided is the norm. And if you sanction Barry Weiss being called a witch, and this has nothing to do with the fact that witch rhymes with bitch. I want people not to get distracted by that. (laughs) This is gender neutral. Okay, you you anticipated one kind of argument, but here's another kind of argument, which is you said that... um, that White Fragility is a racist book. And yet mm-hmm. you're now castigating people who call other people racist. Good point. Can you please explain yourself? Yes, because, and this is what I said in um, the NPR interview, and it was very artfully edited because, you know, they make it shorter than what you said. But what I said in the original feed was that when I call that book racist, I mean racist circa 1967. I'm talking about the original use of the word. I think that if you write that, nah, not right, because I don't want to call her that, which I said. The book itself and its thesis is predicated upon an idea that we are lesser beings. 
It's not about what its implications would be for societal hierarchy. That book talks down to black people and making us seem so fragile. I came out of it thinking it's as if she thinks I'm a child. I feel condescended to. I feel like, you know, I'm just old enough to remember this sort of thing. The occasional teacher when I was like seven, eight, where you could tell that they thought of black kids as troubled in some way, and they weren't treating me quite like the other kids. I remember being able to smell it even then. And then in college, a couple of backwards professors that I had, it's that. Now, I don't think that's the kind of person Robin D'Angelo is. She's not old enough. But the book pats us on the head like we are little penguins. So I think that it is a racist piece of work because within all the nobility that she's trying to cultivate in herself and in white people, she's implying that we have no resilience and that we can't make sense. If you read her tenets, it's this self-contradictory set of things that basically make it so that a white person can't talk. How dare, how dare anybody presume that I agree with that way of thinking. And if I don't, then I am what we now call white adjacent and that I am not a proper black person, that I, under critical race theory, don't fit in because I'm not telling the right kind of narrative. How dare they? That book is that. So that's what I mean by that's a racist. So, so let, let me just interrogate this because I see two different threads here. One of them is it's infantilizing. You think that I'm so uh, without resilience or toughness of character that I can't bear to be confronted as a black person with something that runs runs contrary to me with imperfection yeah that's one kind of thing uh, an, another kind of thing is um that uh your your account of what's going on in the world is wrong that you you uh well take let me i want to be concrete so take something like affirmative action say take someone who says i'm colorblind i just want to hire the most qualified person i have not read robin d'angelo's book but i'm sure that's wrong i'm sure a white person I'm sure she thinks that a white person who says, I'm, I just want to hire the best person. I don't care what color they is. That's wrong. Right? Is, yeah. is committing, you know, is committing a big faux pas. So now she might be instructing white people not to talk like that. And she might be doing it out of a concern that when they do, they commit a microaggression against black people. And this could be the thing that you're objecting to. Don't think that I'm so thin skinned and so weak that I can't tolerate someone saying that they don't like affirmative action or whatever it is. Uh, that they don't see color. I can't tolerate that. Let them speak their mind. I can stand up for myself. You could be saying that. But another thing that you could be saying is that it's just objectively wrong to take the position that I can't say I don't see color. As a matter of fact, that is the right goal toward which we should be striving, a goal where people don't see color. The racism have become too important, even too important to the identities of people, quote unquote, people of color. This is what I want to tell my students if I thought they'd hear it, but I don't tell them because I know I'll lose all credibility with them and they won't hear anything else that I would say. But what I want to say to them, really? You're 18 years old. You're about to embark on this four-year extravaganza where you have nothing to do but read books and ideas and meet people and think, uh, and you're going to put yourself in a silo? You're a black? You're, you're, You're a gay? I mean, of course you are those things, but that's only one of the 150 things that you are, man. We're at the university. The world is our oyster. Everything is possible. Learn a language, read a book, read it. You know, don't just be this thing. That's what I want to say to them. That's probably mm-hmm. the right idea. Robin D'Angelo is wrong for two reasons. One, because she underestimates what black people can take. Our students should be told sometimes by some people who actually believe it. 
that their sophomore agnostics that they brought into the classroom with them are inconsistent with the goals of this university, which is here to teach you how to think, not how to be. They should be told that. We should assume they're tough enough to tell them that. But that's also true. It's, I mean, it, it, do you see the distinction that I'm trying to draw between the therapeutic motive, which is to take care of the person, and the pedagogic motive, which is to empower them by expanding the way that they think about themselves and about the world? Robin D'Angelo is harmful in both dimensions. I agree with you completely, although we differ slightly on this person. I don't know why I always have it be somebody from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, this white person who says, I don't see color because (laughs) I don't believe them. I know that person. I've heard that person. Well, let me say, let me say, I mean, is it okay for me to say this? Yes, it is. Okay. Let me say, I was always (laughs) taught that you don't see color. I just judge people by what kind of person they are. And that's the way it is. Now, these other people, I don't know, but I don't see color. I know where that person is coming from. I know that he really believes it, and I'm not trying to make him sound dumb. I'm imitating, actually, Bobby Cannavale. I don't but you know don't believe him. I don't know. No, they don't know. Of course they see color. But the thing is, who cares? I don't know what kind of perfect world these people are waiting for. Yeah, of course that person sees color, and they might have certain, you know, stereotypes. You know, they might be more likely to be, they might be a little more patient with white people than they are with black people. Yeah, that's how it goes. That's just how it goes. It isn't the way it was in 1960. It isn't the way it was in 1980. How far do you need it to come? And I feel like there's a certain kind of person these days who's just obsessed with making it perfect. Although then also they bristle when you try to say anything about how they're hung up too much on their color and their race. And the damnedest thing is that a lot of the people who are making these arguments now, because it's 2020, you know, they've got one white parent, they have an Ivy League education, you know, the whole idea of black culture and what they consider membership in it to be is rather abstract at this point, and yet they're insisting that they belong to, they identify with this particular thing which isn't coherent, but yeah, I just, I don't get why we're supposed to care. So yes, I, the the person in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, yes, they do see color. Yes, they are a tiny bit racist, but there's some, as I've said on this show so often, there's so much else to think about in life that I don't know why we have to obsess so much over this, except that if you obsess over it to a certain amount and you can always pull that racist charge out of your bag, you've got a magic wand makes you feel like you matter. And I just, help help me understand something, John. How is it, the book was on the bestseller list in 2018 and it's come back. There's a second wave now, what with all of the race talk. How is that? I mean, who's buying the book? I mean, uh, why is it such a cultural phenomenon? What's in the minds? Is it, is it all HR departments, you know, uh, a, uh, mandating that the, tra- the diversity training program adopt the book or is it, and I suspect it's the latter. I suspect it's a lot of well-meaning white people trying to understand a phenomenon that has somehow overtaken them and uh, wanting to be on the right side of history and, and looking for some guidance from Ibram Kendi and uh, Robin D'Angelo about how to do that. They don't want to be called a racist. I mean, I, being like, you know, try the acting drama class exercise of putting yourself in someone's head. I'm imagining being white, watching George Floyd get killed once a night, Basically, you assume for reasons we both understand that the reason he's being killed is because he's black. Most people aren't going to read John McWhorter's piece in Quillette or things like that. So they, they think that he's being killed because a racist was on his neck. And they're thinking to themselves, 
is this my fault somehow? Because every time they turn on MSNBC, every time they read Slate, they are encountering somebody who is telling them that they are complicit. You know that Trisha Rose word, not that she started it, but within which you're complicit. So you're complicit. Can you imagine how that must feel? I really get it. And so you're thinking, am I complicit? Am I to feel guilty about this? And if anything, if I were that white person, I would go to the metaphorical bookstore and I would pick up either my Kendi or my D'Angelo and I would read through it and I would say that I'm looking for insights. And I would, frankly, I can imagine being a kind of white person who forgets that book as quickly as they can, but I would at least make the gesture. You've got Kendi with his dreadlocks, with that somber expression on his face. That is exactly who you are supposed to go to. You're supposed to, because everybody is scared to death of being called a racist, even at this point in the abstract. I get the feeling they're afraid that, you know, Trisha Rose is going to come in a dream and call them a racist while they're asleep or something. I get that. That's why they're doing it. But they need to hear that this censorious view of themselves is not the only way that even a black person might see it. And that, yes, there's racism. And yes, we need to think about it, but not to the point of recreating the French Revolution in letters. And that's what's going on. Okay. Well, what else you got on your uh, on your mind here, John? I feel kind of I've kind of gotten it out. I feel like we've kind of done the past two weeks. But what what else are you thinking about? Well, I'm you know thinking about the future of the country. I'm I'm thinking about uh, uh, autonomous Princeton. zones in the middle of big cities. I'm thinking about an election that's coming. Um, I what I, about Princeton? You know, Princeton in this manifesto about how what the school is supposed to do in committing to anti-racism, which includes hiring black professors, but roughly not you or me, which is one of the clauses, because we are not um, we're not sufficiently anti-racist. But well, did, did I don't you know. Read that? No, one, no one has knocked on my door. That's true. But I'm good, man. I'm, I'm not moving. I'm, you know, I'm very <laughs> happy where I am right now. A lot uh, of people <laughs> sign that thing, you know, at, at Princeton. You know, it wasn't just a few hotheads. It was a lot of people. And so is that going to happen to some well, of our I saw ideas? that, and the thing that got my uh, that got my uh, greatest attention from it was the demand or insistence that a committee be impaneled of faculty who would review the research and teaching of their colleagues with an eye toward identifying and sanctioning expressions of racism in the uh, public statements, the writing, or the teaching of of their colleagues, and that that was a very ominous thing to me. I, I can imagine what such a committee might look like, and I can imagine, I don't know, if there were an Amy Wax at Princeton, there isn't that I know of, but there certainly could be. I speak of the University of Pennsylvania law professor who's so controversial because she thinks Western culture is whatever she means by that is a good thing, and because she thinks affirmative action is a bad thing, and she's been pilloried. Uh, I assume that she would then, and be called a racist, she would then uh, be disqualified by this Princeton committee. I mean, this is the kind of thing I'm imagining. Uh, uh, happening, and I thought that that was that was not so great. Um, I saw I saw our friend Eddie Gloud uh, as a leading member of the Princeton faculty, uh, chairman of the Department of African American Studies there, and a professor of religion, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 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 commenting uh, as uh, favorably about uh, such a uh, such a uh, standing up such a committee. Uh, and thought, gosh, oh, and Joshua Katz, isn't that the professor of the uh, yeah. classics here? Classics yeah. professor who objected and then who fell under a good deal of 
of uh, acrimonious uh, scrutiny because of his objections to the Princeton letter. And uh, he and Glaude got into some indirect back and forth in the Princetonian. And uh, he called a black student organization a terrorist organization for their terrorizing verbal actions against people. But he wasn't allowed to use metaphor. And so now he's on the hot seat for that because that's racist. That's a racist. Because he, statement. in effect, accused them indirectly of violence and they haven't actually practiced violence. And they even Although, of course, the same crowd call it violence when somebody, you know, calls a product Trader Jose. Well, that's violence, you know, not to mention silence is violence, apparently. But if you use violence metaphorically when it's black students scaring the shit out of often other black students, well, that's no good. That's racism. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the logic that we're dealing with from this crowd. It's typical. And it's- uh, another demand or uh, insistent uh, suggestion was that uh, black faculty, faculty of color, and I don't even really know what that means. And have we really been reduced to parsing who is of color and who is not of color? It just seems such an absurd uh, uh, point to have arrived at. But in any case, would be given additional sabbatical time as compensation for the extra burdens that they bear because they have to have mentoring relationships with students of color, not realizing that they've just assumed something that requires to be justified, which is that the color of the faculty and the color of the student is relevant to the pedagogic uh, uh, joining of the two in the joint mission of the university. I would have thought that you fight tooth and nail not to arrive at that presumption rather than to embrace it wholeheartedly. But now uh, assistant professors who happen to be quote of color, whatever that means, are going to get three semesters off uh, in the first four years as opposed to two semesters or whatever the rule is for everybody else. And they can imagine actually doing that with in the university. With it assumed that every one of these, quote unquote, of color professors is definitely going to wind up with that disproportionate burden of advising because life on all of all places in the American college campus is so abusively racist that students of color are that aggrieved. And there's no question as to whether that's an empirical picture of what happens on a college campus. No, we're supposed to think that because a bunch of, you know, drunken wrestlers maybe say some stuff in a private, you know, email conversation and that gets discovered. And then maybe one other thing the year after that it is an abusively racist campus such that if you and I were hired now, we would get extra time off because we're spending so much of our energy advising these aggrieved students as if they're James Meredith at Ole Miss 400 years ago. And yet, if you question any of this, you're a bigot. This is not mature discussion. Well, we've we, we've boxed ourselves in because this is all built on the assumption that the color of the student and the color of the professor is relevant to the goal of the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, the student complains, I don't see any faculty who look like me. The new faculty of color say all the portraits on the hall in the venerable dining uh, room where we have the big faculty meeting and whatnot are old white males. I don't see any gay people. I don't see any women. This is what they say. Okay. So you have, uh, by crediting this kind of talk, bought into the assumption that the student will be disserved if in a moment of distress, they don't have a faculty person of color to be able to confide in. You dare not say to them, Look, we are human beings here. This is a humanistic enterprise that we're engaged in. We will be communing with Socrates. He's been dead for thousands of years. We're going to be learning languages that you had never heard before, because in those literary traditions are great insights of the human uh, spirit that are rendered in a way that will transform your life if you acquaint yourself with them. 
You don't see anybody who looks like you? Are you kidding me? Everybody here is a human being. That's the primary context within which we carry on a humanistic enterprise. That's what the university is. Now, that's going to sound, I don't know, racist? Was that speech racist? Okay, that's where we have arrived at. So what I'm saying is we can pick away at these little uh, policies and these objectionable doings, but if we don't address ourselves to the erroneous foundational assumptions, and it's ironic because these people claim to be for racial justice, and yet they embrace racial essentialism. They embrace a view of the human being in which race, race becomes an essential characteristic about their humanity. It is not. Say I. I'm sipping my coffee, Glenn. Well, I hear what you're saying, but um, now I'm looking over your shoulder instead of in your eyes. Thing is, what do you say to a student who's trying to study Plato and, and Kant, and they're looking at George Floyd? I mean, don't you find that a little problematic for you to say? Substitute, you're a witch. Or, you know, they have to watch something like, what's this woman in Central Park, Amy Cooper? telling that black guy that she's going to call the police and she actually does it, that's really problematic. Can I observe that's something the about that, that case? Has. I got to observe something about that case. So Christian Cooper, the gentleman who was wrongly treated by Amy Cooper, I can see that yeah. point, took out his phone and photographed the incident. Here's my question. Who actually had more power in that encounter? <laughs> Amy Cooper could call the cops and yes, the cops would come and see a black man and they might beat him to death like they did Eric Garner or whatever. <laughs> but they wouldn't have in Christian that case. Cooper could go up on Instagram with a video and create a whole cultural event that we're still talking about months later. I just want to know who's the powerful agent in that encounter. You know, there's something we should stop because I have to actually make lunch and then do another thing. But, you know, another thing about that is Christian Cooper doesn't want her to be hung out. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm not saying he's a bad guy. I was not saying he was a bad guy. I'm just saying that in addition to all of this, he had the power, but he has said she doesn't deserve to lose her life over this. He's a normal person, but our woke mob feel that he's being too nice and that Amy Cooper should never show her face in public again. Something's wrong. Something is very seriously wrong because there are more Christian Coopers than there are these other people. It's just that the other people scare us to death. Everybody should uh, take a look at, uh, uh, was it Morning Edition? Or all things considered, I can't remember. Today is July 20th. You can find it online at the NPR website. John Holden Forth and his review of uh, Robin DiAngelo's book. It's brilliant. It's a masterful performance. John McWhorter, glad to have you here at the Glenn Show. Let's talk again soon. A pleasure. Very soon. Okay. Definitely.